You know, at our household, I told one of our little boys that uh, part of the sermon today would be with the rights of children, and he said, boy, this is one sermon I want to hear. And uh, so I want to read something about the responsibility of the home that will be a little more extended than the verses that are listed there in the scriptures, those parallel passages from Ephesians and Colossians. Let me uh, stick to Ephesians and begin at verse 15 of the fifth chapter. We're going to see Paul dealing with the re responsibility that we have uh, uh, as, uh, as husbands and wives and as parents and children. We won't deal with the servant and master relationship today. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God even the Father and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For as the husband is the head of the wife, uh, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reverence to Christ in the church, Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. May God bless to our understanding and to our living this important portion of his word to us. The beautiful roses that you see here in the front of the church were given to the glory of God and in loving memory of a ruling elder in the Montreat Presbyterian Church, Dr. L. Nelson Bell, who served as the 112th moderator of our church and also as a missionary for Jesus Christ for many years in China. During uh, this past week, for Father's Day especially, 
There was dedicated at the Piney Grove Cemetery, the churchyard at Swannanoa, a lovely, simple memorial to Dr. and Mrs. Nelson Bell. It was the gift of a generous friend, and that old friend of Dr. Bell's, when I spoke with him on the phone, laughingly said to me, he said, you know, I gave a lot of money to found a, a magazine called Christianity Today. And he said, about the only thing I could understand was the editorials that Dr. Bell wrote. <laughs> so I thought it would be appropriate this morning uh, if I read you a part of one of Dr. Bell's editorials dealing with the Christian home, and then I'll go immediately into our lesson. It was taken from Christianity Today, and it's called Building Christian Homes. Dr. Bell said, Christian homes do not just happen. They are built by Christians, men and women who sense something of the beauty, the wonder, and the responsibilities involved. After the creation, the home was the first institution established in the divine economy. And since that time, it's been the central unit of the social order. In a very large measure, the character of the home determines the character of the nation. In the home, young lives are bent and molded and trained, and they are our citizens of tomorrow. In Japan, one sees dwarf trees, many of them representing birds and animals and even works of inanimate art. They're living trees dwarfed by a secret process their formation being determined by careful bending and pruning during the growing years. And in a like manner, for good or evil, the home is the place where the children encounter the influences that in such a large measure determine what kind of people they grow up to be. Building a Christian home is not an easy task, for Satan hates and fights against the efforts of those who would establish such an institution. Only consecrated parents can face the blood, sweat, and tears involved, the hard work, the courage, the steadfastness, the sleepless hours, the wrestling in prayer. But they do not work alone. A Christian home means, first of all, that Christ is the Lord of the home and that he has preeminence in the lives of those who live there. In the Old Testament, we read that the patriarchs pitched their tents, digged a well, and built an altar. How many today are there who pitch their tents, dig their wells, but make no provision for the Spirit? The altar is never built. There are thousands of houses across America that are fabulous in their appointments for gracious living, but they remain houses only and not homes. A house is built with materials like brick and stone and wood and plaster. It's made with things and it's furnished with things. But a Christian home is built with faith in God, with love, with unselfishness, with consideration, with patience, with prayer, with work and praise. It may be humble or it may be a mansion. Training children is one of the greatest privileges and the responsibility of parents, and Christians must never forget that no child has been properly trained until Christ is preeminent in his or her heart. In a Christian home, probably the greatest influence on the children is the realization that their parents want them to know Christ, get this, want them to know Christ more than anything else in the world. If Christ is given a secondary place in the life of the parents and in their ambition for their children, 
The children know it, and no amount of talk can erase it from their minds for the fact Christ is not first. A Christian home should be the happiest place in the world. There should be the right perspective toward life. Interesting books carefully selected for adventure and instruction and cultural value should be in the bookcases. Games with the parents joining with their children in the fun should form part of the home life. Youthful friends should be made welcome and profitable amusements can be found away from TV or outside influences. Daily prayer and Bible reading will teach children the difference between the temporal and the spiritual values and point them to the source of man's ultimate responsibility. Paul wrote to Timothy and said from a child, you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation. Happier those children whose parents have done as much for them. A Christian home is held together by the cement of love. The love of God, the love of each other, and a love for other people. Some time ago, a man observed a, sta a snake taking baby birds from a nest while the mother bird frantically tried to drive it away. The nest was across a stream and beyond the reach of the observer who could only say, Oh, mother, why did you build your nest so low? Only Christian homes are built high enough to protect all concerned, and only those homes where God is given his rightful place can qualify for his promised protection. A Christian home is built on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. A Christian home is instructed in the word of God. A Christian home is sustained by the power of prayer and by a close walk with the Lord. It's no wonder that carved in a granite seat there where people may come and sit and look at this lovely monument are the words their children rise up and call them blessed. Now then, I want to speak today about the Christian home. And of course, Paul in Ephesians deals, uh, he starts off in the heavenlies and he ends up in the kitchen. And uh, he tells us a lot of things that are very interesting. He tells us, uh, first of all, about this relationship of marriage. He tells us uh, that marriage is important. Now, I know that often we husbands are famous for citing that quotation about wives being subject, but the, uh, the great importance of that passion is that the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Now, any husband who loves his wife enough to be crucified for her wouldn't have much trouble in getting her to be submissive. Uh, you would love to be submissive under that. And even there, the submission is not placed as the, the, the great uh, thing, but uh, all of us are to be submissive under the Lord. Next to God, a man's wife ought to be the most important person to him in the whole wide world. Next to that ought to be his children. Next to that ought to be everyone that he can possibly reach for the Lord. Now, there are four purposes in marriage. God said it is not good for man to live alone. Companionship is one of the reasons that we get married. I've noticed over the years that it seems to be more difficult for men to be alone uh, after the death of a loved one, after their wife is gone, than it is for men, uh, for women. Companionship is not good for a man to be alone. And we 
uh, are also to be married for the purpose of bearing children. And at this point, may I say that I can't help but be distressed as a Christian when I see the sorry view that is presented about marriage on the television set. Honestly, the morals of television are corrupting our country terribly. And when I read, as I read recently in this June issue of the Reader's Digest, it's only recent years with the first TV generation well into its 20s that social scientists and child psychiatrists and pediatricians and educators have begun to study the serious impact of television upon the young. Now, A.C. Nelson is not a fundamentalist preacher, and A.C. Nelson is the great man who puts out the Nelson ratings. And he says children under five watch an, hour of t uh, watch an average of 23 and five-tenths hours of television a week. That today's typical high school graduate has logged 15,000 hours before the television screen, more time than he spent on any other activity except sleeping. At present levels of advertising and mayhem, he will have been exposed to 350,000 commercials and vicariously participated in 18,000 killings. The conclusion is inescapable that after parents, television has become perhaps the most potent influence on the beliefs and the attitudes and the values and the behavior of the young. And so it's important for us to turn back to the Word of God and see what it says about marriage that marriage is honorable, and God commends it to us. And our Lord Jesus participated in that marriage in Cana of Galilee and honored it with a miracle that was performed by him, showing that he brings joy into life. So marriage comes for companionship and marriage comes for children. We are to be fruitful and multiply. If Christian people do not get married and have babies and bring them up in, as Christians, how in the world are there going to be Christians? We need to sense our responsibility there. I do not perform a marriage ceremony between a Christian and a non-Christian. I just refuse to do it. Now, people can call me extremist if they want to, and I don't mind that. I've been called worse things. Uh, but I, I, I want to see to it that the people who come to be married together are married in Christ. Because if Christ is to be the center of our life, if he is to be the king and the Lord of our home, then it must be that we are together at that point or everything else is going to come apart. And then we're to be married uh, also because of control. The sex instinct is a gift of God, a gift for love and communication, and Paul has some straightforward talk to say about it in the seventh chapter of 1 Corinthians. He, said his, he says it's better to marry than to burn. Now, I know some people say that they've got married and got burned too. But uh, uh, Paul tells us there that uh, we are to be married and that sex is to be within the bounds of marriage. And also, it's been given to us as that illustration of Christ in his church. Now then, I want to talk a little bit uh, about the, the rights of children. They have a right to be born. This morning I called over to hospital and talked with a pre-med student, and he told me an interesting imaginary conversation that had taken place between uh, two doctors 
And the first doctor says, look, I've got this woman who has come to me with a problem pregnancy. Uh, she has been married before, and, and uh, ha her first baby died at birth, and now she is married again, and uh, her first child, uh, baby, died also at birth, and she is pregnant again, and she has tuberculosis. Should I abort, or should I not abort? And the second physician says, abort. And my young medical friend said, you have just aborted Ludwig van Beethoven. <laughs> uh, you see, that socio and economic thing won't hack it. Uh, children have a right to be born. Paul assumes that when, uh, and it's assumed as a blessing. Children are not a curse. They're a blessing. I read something the other day that was taken from New Yorker magazine where in New York City, an abortion clinic that had performed over the years about 60,000 abortions had one doctor who had participated in many of these procedures, a Jewish doctor who quit because he had to go into psychoanalytical therapy, uh, because he kept having visions of little babies trying to come into the world whom he was killing. Now let me stop and say this right in the big beginning that I know that there are differences of opinions here, but I also know that we must uphold the word of God. And may I say that the grace of God can forgive any sin, and that God will forgive uh, the sin of, uh, of this too. And I believe that it is a sin, but we cannot blithely look at abortion. If you go at it from socioeconomic, I don't care what the General Assembly says, if you go at it from that aspect, you would have aborted Moses. They had to build bricks without straw. And Moses' mother wasn't going to see that her baby was destroyed. She went to a lot of trouble to see to it that that baby was saved. And it's a good thing he did. Look at Joshua. He was born in a time of slavery. Go through your Bible and look at it and see how God considers the gift of a little life as something precious in his sight. Read the 139th Psalm and see those words that say that I am fearfully and wonderfully made and that God was watching over me when I was knit together in my mother's womb. And if you're a good Methodist, it might interest you to know that John Wesley was about the 14th child, I believe, of his mother. And his father had already been put in prison for debt. And if it had been socioeconomic abortion, you wouldn't have any Methodist church. And you, wouldn't have, and you would have lost a great moderator of the Presbyterian church, and you would have lost this preacher too, uh, because I came from the daughter of a tenant cotton farmer who had seven children. Now then, this book that I hold in my hand is The Life of Alexander White by George F. Barber. I had the privilege of going to school over in Edinburgh, and uh, Alexander White has exercised a profound influence on my life. Alexander White was a child who was born out of wedlock. His mother and father were, his mother was a, the daughter of, a, of two weavers. They wove cloth in their home. They had just a two-room house. And uh, in this little cottage, they wove cloth, and their daughter became pregnant, Janet Thompson. And instead of the mother and father putting Janet Thompson out of the house or instead of any abortion, they lovingly cared for Janet Thompson 
And John White, who was the father of Alexander White, came off to America and fought here in the Civil War. He didn't marry, they didn't marry. And that little boy, Alexander White, grew up in this poverty-stricken home. And when he was 12 years of age, the power looms came in. And this meant that many of these people who wove cloth by hand were put out of work and were literally starving. And the mother, in order to see to it that her little boy was fed and clothed, walked miles into the city of Kurimur, crying every step of the way as she carried her little 12-year-old boy by the hand. When she got into the city of Edinburgh, I mean, into the city of Kurimur, she apprenticed him in a shop where he was going to hear a lot of dirty songs and dirty stories. But when she walked outside the town, she stopped at the kirk. And she saw there a preacher who never would have got through New College at all if someone hadn't passed him in Hebrew when he couldn't learn it. And he didn't have any gifts as a preacher either. But he had a love for God in his heart. And Alexander White used to say, if you've got a good preacher, you can even get along without a father. Because this mother said to the preacher, keep an eye on my laddie. Now later, Alexander White was elected moderator of the General Assembly of the, Pre of, of the Church of Scotland. He was elected principal later of New College in Edinburgh in 1909. And when he was elected as principal, he stood up and made a very learned address in which he spoke about Thomas Chalmers and his predecessors, Dr. Candlish. These are names that you may not be familiar with, Principal Rainey, and Marcus Dodds, great biblical scholars and theologians who had been principals of New College. And let me read you an exact quotation from this man who would be preaching to the Queen when she was in Scotland, this man whose books were read all over the world and who are still printed and read to this day, this man who has exercised such a gracious influence. Now listen to what he says to a crowded General Assembly hall and to the people who hear him inaugurated. Your present principal, gentlemen, has often looked for a good opportunity of speaking a word of hope and encouragement to the poor students among you. A word of hope and encouragement such as no other man in all of Scotland could possibly speak. And now that such an opportunity has come, let all those students whose fathers came over with William the Conqueror put their fingers in their ears. For what I have now to say is not suitable for them. It will not interest them. Well, gentlemen, your present principle has been told that there was a full and kind-hearted house on that night that the General Assembly led him in to receive his orders. He was led in to a big standing ovation, and you have to go to Scotland and see the flags draped and the representative of the Queen or the Queen herself present in the General Assembly meeting to really appreciate this scene. But you know, when he looked out at that vast ovation of people who applauded him, let's see what he says. It might have been so, only he, he is speaking of himself, did not see the assembly all that night. All that night his eyes went back 60 years before. 60 years exactly at about this very hour in the afternoon, 
And what he saw and what he sees this moment was a poor little fellow of 12 years of age who was saying to his mother, don't cry, mother, don't be afraid, for I will go and serve out my time. But mind you, I'm going to be a minister. At that, a great smile of love and pity broke over her strong, sorrow-seamed face. And when she turned away, she wiped the tears from her eyes with her apron and started walking home with a smile. There's the moderator of the Church of Scotland. So you see, children have a right to be born. Children have a right to be born. And we ought to remember this, that this lifestyle that places all the emphasis upon materialism and which does not realize that with love there is always sacrifice and that we must be unselfish. Now, I do not mean that every person has to be married and has to have children. Uh, that's evidently not the case. There are people who, because of their work for the Lord, uh, could not work in a location where they could be married or where they could have children. And there are couples who could not have children, and I understand that. But I do want to say that God has wrought some great blessings out of some very poor families that uh, would have seen abortions take place had these silly, senseless rules that uh, people adhere to today come by. Children have a right to be born. Now, children have a right to be children. Last night when I got home, about 9 o'clock, my wife said to come out and look at the front porch. And I saw three boys, these three boys that we got. They were out there talking with each other, telling tales. And you know, it sort of got next to old Dan. Uh, and I picked up a poem. It's not any poetry, it's doggerel, but it sure expresses something that got to me. To feel his little hand in mine so clinging and so warm. To know he thinks me strong enough to keep him safe from harm. To see his simple faith in all I say or do. It sort of shames a feller, but it makes him better too. I'm trying hard to be the man he fancies me to be because I have this little boy at home who thinks the world of me. I wouldn't disappoint his trust for anything on earth nor let him know how little I just naturally am worth. But after all, it's easier that brighter road to climb with the little hands behind me to push me all the time. So I reckon I'm a better man than what I used to be because I got that little boy at home who thinks the world of me. And that's the way it ought to be. God can make a blessing from the children. And so, uh, children, uh, we fathers have a responsibility. And that nurture and admonition of the Lord means discipline. And uh, discipline sometimes means, and by the way, children, I, ha I work with a psychiatrist over in Asheville, and I have for about 10 years. And he told me that uh, the children that are the happiest, the children that learn the most, are the children who are lovingly disciplined. When they learn to obey with love, then they're going to learn from their teachers in school, and then they're going to have a proper respect for authority. Now, I know these are unpopular words in a day when everyone talks about being liberated. Uh, but let me say again, as I said last Sunday, our, our biggest problem is not to, to find our freedom. 
It's to find our master. Who's going to be our master? Not selfishness. I read about a little girl who was riding with her father in the car, and she decided decided to stand up in the front seat, and her father commanded her to sit down and put the seatbelt on. And she defied him, and he told her a second time. And he said, if you don't sit down immediately, I'll pull over to the side of the road and spank you. And she sat down, and she glanced over at him, and she said, Daddy, I'm still standing up inside. <laughs> so you see, you, you have to work with these little wills, uh, but you work with love. I'm sure Daddy must have broken out in great laughter. In fact, I know he did at that, because uh, this is the way they do. You don't expect them to be little grown-ups. They, you nurture them. Uh, I like to grow roses. But in order to grow roses, you have to learn how to fight bugs and fungus. And to grow children, you have to learn how to, to deal with the things that would thwart their growth. And you have to learn how to deal with them, and they're more valuable than all the roses that ever were. My boys will be glad to hear that. Uh, <laughs> uh, they, 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 so we have to learn these things. Now, children have a right to be children. And let me say this, this means that uh, they have a right to a Christian home. Paul has just been talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit. He said, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, was he saying be filled with the Holy Spirit so you can stand up and preach and sing or talk in tongues or whatever? No, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit in order to be a good wife. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit in order to be a good husband. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit in order to be a good mother. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit in order to be a good father. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit in order to be a good boy or girl, a good son or a daughter. And God can bless you in that way. What's uh, the fruit of the Spirit? If you look at those verses, joyfulness, thankfulness, and submissiveness. And when the Holy Spirit is there, the first fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. And it's amazing what love can do. Now, sometimes we are told that when problems crop out of a home, that it always means that uh, from the children that something has gone wrong uh, with the parents. This may often be the case. It is not always the case, though, I don't believe. Uh, I think there are exceptions to that. But children deserve to have our time. That's what Dr. Bell was getting at when he wrote that editorial that was so beautiful. If you'll pardon me for talking again personally, uh, Bobby Richardson is a great favorite of mine. And Bobby used to play second base for the New York Yankees. And for 12 years, he played for the New York Yankees. And they've never had another second baseman, I don't think, as good as Bobby. Bobby could have made the Hall of Fame, I think, if he had stayed in professional baseball with the Yankees, but his family began to increase, and he felt that it was more important for him to resign his position with the Yankees and to take up a coaching job in South Carolina so that he could spend time with his family. Bobby's a great Christian, and I remember going down uh, to Sumter to go quail hunting with Bobby, and we went out to this place to borrow some bird dogs, and there was a man there who is a famous handler, a trainer of bird dogs. And my psychiatrist friend and I were together. We were hunting together. So we were out there, and all these dogs were yelping and barking, and one of them starts, and then that's a signal for the whole pack. 
and uh, you couldn't hear yourself think hardly. And then uh, my doctor friend has a, I hope he's listening on the radio to this. <laughs> he has a dog called Baron Von Richthofen. It's the dumbest bird dog I ever saw. And, <laughs> and the best way to hunt with him is to tie him to a tree and go on hunt. And uh, uh, anyway, uh, uh, Bill Griffin said uh, to my friend uh, Bobby and, and to his friend, the bird dog trainer, he said, uh, uh, how do you train these dogs? He said, I've sent my dog off to these schools and, and the dog doesn't uh, obey me like the dog should. And uh, this bird dog trainer said a very interesting thing. He said, well, Doc, I'll tell you. He said, I have all these big shots who fly in here in their airplanes, and they bring their bird dogs to me to train. And he said, I keep their bird dogs for a few months, and I have them so that they will obey promptly and immediately the commands that I give to them. And then they come back in their airplanes, and they get the dogs, and we work together, and then they take the dogs off. And after a while, here they come back again. And they say, that dog won't do a thing in the world that I tell him to do. And he said, I ask every last one of them the same question. I say, how much time have you spent with that dog? And they say, well, I don't have time to spend with that bird dog. I got a newspaper to publish. I got a business to run. And he said, mister, they don't understand anything about your newspaper. They can't read it. Uh, they don't know anything about your business. All they know is the sound of your voice and whether or not you're going to feed them and pat them and what you're going to tell them to do. Now, if you're not going to spend any time with the bird dog, then get you a handler and send the handler down here to me and let me teach the handler how to handle him, and then you can go back and work the dog. But if you're not going to spend any time with it, uh, then you're not going to get anything. And so that time has to be there. So children have a right to be born, children have a right to be children, and children have a right, according to this passage of Scripture, to be children. And of course, that entails discipline. There's a famous quotation, there was a bishop up on Wall Street, an Episcopalian, uh, called Daddy Hall, who's a great patriotic American. And uh, he, he said, uh, and I want to read his quotation, he said, I've often said that I was brought up at the knee of a godly father and across the knee of a godly mother. <laughs> <laughs> he said, she gave me the stripes and I saw the stars. <laughs> uh, well, there is discipline. But when it is uh, done with uh, love, then God blesses that love and he blesses that discipline. And uh, you can train children in the way that will bring honor to him. Now then, let me say lastly, I want to end up where I started off. When we love our children this way, it has a, an influence on them. I was reading about a group of teenagers who were at a party. And after they left the party, one of them suggested that they go to a certain restaurant that was highly questionable. And one of the girls named Jan said, I'd rather that you took me home. My parents don't approve of that place. One of them teased Jan and said, Ah, you're afraid your father will hurt you. She said, No, I'm not afraid my father will hurt me. I'm afraid I'll hurt him. And I don't want you to take me there. Now you see, that's responsible love. And it comes back. And so we start, stop where we started off. Heaven is pictured as a type of home. The Garden of Eden was like heaven until man sinned. 
When he went out, he took Eve with him, and he was supposed to keep a home. And home was supposed to be like heaven with the Holy Spirit ruling in our hearts and causing us to live and to love with one another. Now, if what I've said today would have the effect of causing one wife and mother, one husband or father, one son or daughter, to be willing to love each other, just to forget the past and the things that have been done that were wrong and to love one another. And I don't speak as a perfect father, a perfect husband. I speak as one who needs the grace of God like everyone else and the Holy Spirit working in our hearts so that we can see to it that our children are brought up the way they should. Now, out there at the churchyard, carved on the stone for Dr. Bell are those beautiful words from 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. It says, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then we also shall appear with him, for we shall be like him. And then the words on Mrs. Bell's stone, uh, which are taken from Psalm 17, 15, I shall be satisfied when I awake in thy likeness. I almost wish they had been carved, we shall be satisfied when we awake in thy likeness. Because you bury them like you marry them, man on the right, woman on the left. The scriptures are put there antiphonally. Now then, that's a testimony. You see, right now we can't see Jesus as he is. We just see him as he was. And when Paul talks about heaven, he doesn't talk about the pearl, pearly gates or the walls of jasper, or the streets of gold or the sea mingled with fire. He talks about Christ. And one day we're going to see Christ. And he's to be the master and the Lord over our home. And then we're going to have a blessed reunion with our loved ones, uh, with whom we'll be forever with the Lord. And that's a wonderful thought to me. When I think about heaven, heaven wouldn't be heaven without Jesus. Just as a great house would be an empty place if the signal figure of that household were gone. But there's where he's going to be. And our loved ones who have gone to be with him are there too. It is only by our faith in him, that is Jesus, that we keep our hold on those who pass out of our sight across the seas or underneath the churchyard grass. Before I close this service, may I say to you that the most beautiful thing that could happen from this time of worship would be if some one of you, especially anyone who hasn't known Jesus as Savior and Lord, would just be unafraid of him and to know that he loves you and that he'll take you just as you are. And if you'll give as much of yourself as you know how to give to as much of him as you understand, he'll make you what you ought to be. He'll come into your home too. Now let us pray. Lord God, who has set the world in families, help us to see the benefits of family life sealed with the love that thou hast given to the world in its Savior, thy Son, Jesus Christ. Give us, fathers, a sense of our responsibility to our children, and to our children a sense of duty to us as fathers. And above all, grant to us as husbands and wives a love for each other 
that passes understanding, born and nurtured at the foot of the cross where our Lord gave himself for us all. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom be all glory, all honor, dominion, and power, now and forevermore. Thank you.